Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. We've been talking about karma. I want to continue with a surprising thing about karma, then we'll end with some notes on the practice of virtue. The end of karma. Even though our karma may be consistently wholesome, it is nonetheless productive of karmic results, of continued grasping at becoming, and of continued samsaric existence. We're still attached to the results of our good deeds. We identify with our ethics and with our practice of ethics. We see ourselves as saints, as shining examples of Buddhist practice destined for felicitous rebirth and eventual awakening. And this viewpoint partially defines who we are. Even wholesome karma produces a sometimes ever so slight amount of craving and therefore suffering and continued existence. Recall that the stream-enterer has eliminated three fetters, one of which is attachment to norms and observances. In overcoming this fetter, he has already begun to loosen the grasping at becoming that ensues in spite of and as a result of successful Buddhist practice. Under observances are included such things as meditation practice, which notoriously calls forth attachment to higher states of mind. Nonetheless, even the stream-enterer continues to produce karma and therefore grasps at becoming even while also having abandoned self-identity view. How do we stop producing karma? And And what what becomes is the way leading to the cessation of karma. It is this noble eightfold path. Of course, the elixir that cures all ills, the noble eightfold path. But wait, isn't the path a matter of practice? And isn't practice just karma with karmic results? Yes, but the Buddha actually distinguishes four kinds of karma that we perform. Dark karma with dark result. Bright karma with bright result. Dark and bright karma with dark and bright result. And karma that is neither dark nor bright with neither dark nor bright result. Karma that leads to the destruction of karma. Dark karma is simply unwholesome karma and bright karma is wholesome karma. These new terms are fortunate because rather than sounding like ethical categories, they hint at how our intentions actually feel as they arise. The third category is that of mixed intentions. Most of our intentions are in fact complex. 
For instance, wishing benefit for others, yet being attached to results as a matter of pride. Karma that is neither dark nor bright has no ethical feel. It's simply functional. It tends to break the cycle of mutual conditioning between old and new karma by appeasing the formations or weakening their conditions, as we'll hear in a later talk. The practices that lead to the end of karma are generally found outside of the ethics group, particularly as right mindfulness and right concentration, which are able to approach formations at a very subtle level. The best we can do within the ethics group is to cultivate the wholesome and remove the unwholesome. For replacing unwholesome karma with wholesome karma brings us closer to ending all karma. But the consequences of neither dark nor bright karma are felt ultimately also in the ethics group. The end of karma does not entail the end of virtue in the sense that beneficial conduct observably drops off or harmful conduct observably picks up for the arahant. Quite the contrary. Instead, virtue is no longer motivated as a self-improvement or character-building project. Keep in mind that such motivations completely disappear only as we are approaching complete awakening. Rather, as the self gets completely out of the way, virtue flows uninhibited, without bias or constraint, without attachment to virtue nor to results, but attempting to alleviate suffering wherever it can. We become truly virtuous rather than just made of ethics. See la wa rather than see la maya. The practice of virtue. When you first begin to follow precepts, conventional generosity, or even ritual, this regulation of your behavior may feel restrictive, like you fit yourself uncomfortably into a box that affords little freedom of movement. It's possible that your non-Buddhist friends will think that that is exactly what you've gotten yourself into. Remarkably, within a short while, if you've been practicing diligently, these practices will probably instead feel liberating. Certainly, most monastics seem to discover this sense of liberation even in following the hundreds of precepts we follow. How can this be? Recall that liberation in Buddhism is not to get what you want, but not to want. You were already oppressed before coming to Buddhism by the ever-deepening ruts of your karmic landscape that kept you locked mindlessly and relentlessly in certain unfortunate patterns of behavior and thought, much of which were unskillfully dedicated to the fruitless search for personal advantage, that is, to wanting, and were thereby also painful. The practice of virtue will give you your first taste of liberation by lifting you out of your karmic ruts, by showing that there is no inevitability in your conditioning, that there is a different way of being in the world 
a more deliberate way, a happier way. But finding this out does take discipline. Moreover, as you practice this different way of being in the world, you will get a clearer picture of the intentions that had been driving your actions in the world, intentions that you hadn't noticed while you were on autopilot, passively following the ruts of habitual action. But as you regulate your behaviors and begin to bump up against the walls of the box your friends think you have fit yourself into, you will notice those intentions as you leave many of the those intentions frustrated or as you leave some unconsummated impulse or agenda dangling. This is a prime opportunity for investigation. At one point, you might see a bit of ill will hanging unexpressed and peeling off of this unmistakable stress and maybe notice the potential victim out there in the world who has just benefited as a consequence of your choice not to give expression to your deeply rutted ill will. You will thereby begin to see in what sense many of your thoughts and impulses are indeed unskillful, in fact dangerous, and how restraining them is quite appropriate. Indeed, you will have the opportunity to discover who or what you really are. Another way to practice virtue is to start with intentions rather than with precepts. In fact, these might become your primary guides for right action, as well as for right speech, as they become an object of practice in their own right. You should learn to be very mindful of them throughout the day. They can become easy to spot. Unwholesome intentions are those wearing some degree of suffering. Stress, anxiety, dis-ease, or dissatisfaction like a shadow. They will also give rise to misperception and will take you away from the path. And when acted out will almost certainly cause someone harm. They also fall under at least one of the categories of greed, hatred, and delusion. With mindfulness of intentions, it should be possible to practice restraint. For instance, to stop at the point where thought turns to speech, whenever you realize that the thought will be unwholesome, particularly challenging, are angry thoughts, which can overwhelm your discernment very quickly, but even these will come under control as you reach advanced stages of practice. There are a variety of techniques for stopping at this critical juncture between thought and bodily or verbal action, and you will discover some on your own. For instance, never ever write an email in an angry frame of mind. If some issue needs to be addressed, wait until the mind is calm, then address it with gentle words at the right time. Face-to-face encounters that turn to anger might require that you quietly and abruptly leave the room to go simmer down, lest you utter something demeritorious. As objects of practice in themselves, you learn to improve the quality of your intentions to weed out the unwholesome, and to cultivate the wholesome. Sometimes this involves attending to the conditions 
that bring about these unwholesome factors. For instance, if you avoid stressful activities, anger is less likely to arise. Note that if the recovering alcoholic avoids the company of people who are drinking alcohol, he is less likely to have the impulse to do so. You can similarly avoid circumstances that tend to lead into undesirable but accustomed ruts. Sometimes weeding out an arisen unwholesome intention involves simply diverting the mind away from it or instead directing the mind toward it as an object of mindful investigation. These techniques all belong to right effort. The first of the three path factors of the cultivation of mind group, which we'll take up in next week's talk. Another way to practice virtue is to protect the purity of the mind from activities that cause no immediate harm, but which develop unskillful habit patterns nonetheless. For instance, you do well to avoid playing violent video games or watching violent television programs or listening to hateful speech on the radio, because you know that these activities will condition the mind toward anger and fear, with time scoring deep ruts in your karmic landscape. Likewise, channel or web surfing may train the mind towards restlessness and discontent. Entertainments that excite lust will tend similarly to depurify the mind, even while doing no outward verbal or physical harm. Modern times have produced new channels for speech or speech-like activities, situation comedies, talk shows, hate radio, crime dramas, war movies, soap operas, pundits propounding, cell phones a-ringing, ads enticing, thumbs a-gaming, webs a-surfing, email, texting, social media, and crossword puzzles. The volume and vacuity of much of this content have put what counts as idle chatter off the charts in our modern world. Moreover, the degree of misrepresentation, stereotyping, deceit, and swindle at play in our culture represents an unprecedented height in our exposure to untruth. Examples of divisive or harsh speech, along with more than occasional depictions of physical violence abound, which your children are learning to emulate. It's imperative that you, as a Buddhist practitioner, serious about the path, try substantially to limit your and their media exposure to more elucidating kinds of content. Some modern Buddhist writers provide similar advice concerning modern media, but as a generalization of the precept concerning intoxication. This emphasizes the stupefying effect of much media, which also cannot be overemphasized. With the time you save by making less use of modern media, you might think about fulfilling your practice of generosity through meritorious social engagement. Show up to city hall meetings. Visit some charitable organizations to see what help they need. Find a way to make the world a better place.
The practice of right livelihood focuses primarily on understanding the consequences of our major life choices, the benefits and harm thereof. This assessment might occur at a young age, before choosing a college major or embarking on a career plan. It might involve a reassessment of decisions already made. I used to write software in what now seems like a previous life, sometimes under U.S. Defense Department contracts. One project, for instance, involved an automated, intelligent, GPS-based route planning system for some kind of small, autonomous aircraft whose description was highly redacted, but which everyone in our team agreed was some kind of weapon system. This ended up being a major factor for me in ending my high-paid, high-tech corporate career in favor of what I do now. However, the radical redirecting of my career path would have been extremely difficult if I were not at a point in my life in which my children were reaching adulthood and my family obligations were loosening up. In these modern times, it is probably particularly difficult to find a right livelihood. If you do not design weapon systems, you might work in marketing, trying to convince the public that ingesting some horrid concoction of petrochemicals High fructose corn syrup and saturated fats will add zest to their lives. You often have little choice of livelihood simply because the economy offers few choices. Moreover, what is considered a respectable livelihood in our society may be quite a bit different from what is right livelihood in Buddhist culture. Being a soldier or a banker investing in real estate, exterminating insects and pests, or stretching the truth a little to make a sale is in good stead in one but not in the other. Furthermore, large modern enterprises typically distribute decisions in such a way that obscure ethical responsibility and workers who are compensated through wages have little control over the product of their labor. You might be lucky to find a job at a retail store in which you will be required to sell pesticides, booze, meat, and, especially in the USA, guns, with whatever scheming, persuading, and hinting will close the sale. No religious exemptions are generally offered. So, too, is samsara. And generally, the contingencies of your life and your decisions are likely to make your Buddhist practice a part-time matter. Unfortunately, our practice does not fit into a part-time box. For all your karma committed throughout the day bears fruit, sometimes sweet, sometimes bitter. Perfecting virtue is a long practice that requires patience. As you begin Buddhist practice, you might think, I'm already a nice guy. I've got virtue covered. Accordingly, you might place your primary focus on the more alluring practice of meditation. However, if you sincerely engage with the practice of virtue, you are likely to discover that you are not as nice as you thought. Far from it. This was my experience. 
However, this discovery should never be the cause for guilt or despair, which would be just another accretion of unwholesome factors. You are human, and humans are intrinsically faulty beings. If it were otherwise, the world would be a much saner, kinder place than it is. To become otherwise is a monumental undertaking that requires discipline and persistence. You can, in fact, find enormous satisfaction in the realization that you are, after beginningless time, finally doing something to correct the intrinsic fault of human nature. Be forgiving of your own faults and also those of others. Okay, this ends our discussion of the virtue factors of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and about karma. Next week, we'll get into the remaining three factors of the path, the ones that have to do with the cultivation of mind, which will include our meditation practice. <laughs> 